Hi, welcome to Nutra Champion, a podcast series where we speak with experts specializing in nutrition research, including scientists, doctors, and policy makers. Here, we will find out more about their research journey, their career, and even some personal life lessons. I'm Ting Ming, the editor of Nutra Ingredients Asia and your host for this podcast. You can listen to our past episodes on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. In this episode, I'm happy to be joined by Professor Rupert Leong, who is the Senior Staff Specialist Gastroenterologist, the Director of Endoscopy and the Head of Inflammatory Bowel Disease Service at Concord Hospital in Australia. He is also the Clinical Professor of Medicine at University of Sydney and Macquarie University and the Founding Director of IBD Sydney. An expert in the management of inflammatory bowel diseases, Prof. Leong has made a substantial contribution to research with over 260 high-quality scientific journals publications. So recently, Prof. Leong and his team have published a groundbreaking work on how orally administered fecal microbiota transplantation has led to the remission of ulcerative colitis. And the findings were published in The Lancet, Gastroenterology and Hepatology. Hi, Prof. Leong. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me on this podcast. How are you? Thank you. It's a great pleasure. I'm very well, thank you. How are you this afternoon? Yes, uh, I'm, 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 I'm good as well. Yes, is it very busy for you on your side? Uh, things are getting busier. Uh, we've gone through the worst of the Omicron uh, COVID variants and numbers improving. So that means our he- healthcare system should be returning back to normal next month. So we're on low activity at the moment just to do the emergency cases, but uh, routine cases can be done from next month onwards. Mm, I see. Yes. So today, right, we will start off with, you know, the discussion on your latest uh, publication, which is on this uh, aura FMT. Actually, I read about this uh, FMT about two years ago. Um, it's, uh, it's an update by the TGA, Therapeutic Goods Administration. So I think they were seeking some public comments. And I saw this, uh, you know, this research finding on the use of oral FMT. I think this is, you know, another another progressive, uh, a huge jump from what I saw about two years ago because this time it's oral FMT. Yes, so perhaps uh, can you share more about the background story on how did the clinical trial come about using this oral FMT uh, method? Yes, there have been about five randomized controlled trials of using fecal microbiota transplantation for the treatments of ulcerative colitis. And most of them have used only liquid FMT. So they are either fresh or frozen fecal uh, specimens and they are uh, infused in a liquid formulation into the patient. And um, four out of five of them have had positive results. So they do seem to induce remission in patients with ulcerative colitis. But what is not known is whether we can give FMT in a capsule formulation, which then will be easier for patients to store and to take and not require them to thaw the liquid out in order to uh, give themselves the FMT. The other thing that's not known is whether the FMT can sustain remission beyond eight weeks, because most of these studies have been very short term, only eight weeks to induce remission. What we don't know is whether if we can give smaller amounts of FMT, whether we can actually maintain remission out to one year. So the Lotus study gave us 
that opportunity to firstly look at capsule formulation of FMT to see if it can actively induce remission, and secondly, to extend that beyond eight weeks to see if it can maintain remission over time. I see. Yeah, so you mentioned about the liquid FMT. So liquid FMT is not orally administered, right? Is it something like maybe injection or something? Can you yes. talk about that? The liquid formulation is usually given via colonoscopy. So the studies that have been positive, the liquid FMT was given as an infusion into patient during colonoscopy when the colonoscope was in the right colon and the liquid then dwells inside the large bowel. And subsequent to that, patients, when they go home after the colonoscopy, they also are instructed to give themselves liquid enemas. Enema is where you introduce uh, liquids uh, formulation via the rectum, and patients can do that themselves, usually at nights when they're lying flat at night. So um, one of the studies used 40 administrations of enemas over eight weeks. So patients essentially gave themselves five enemas per week in order to uh, improve and increase the um, uh, engraftments of the FMT organisms um, in the into the bowel. So you can see that this is quite a big ordeal for patients. Uh, not only are they having a diarrheal illness, ulcerative colitis is inflammation in the bowel and it causes ulceration in the large bowel and that can cause patients to have abdominal pain, diarrhea and also rectal bleeding. And the purpose of FMT is to try to decrease the inflammation in this chronic incurable disease. So when patients are already having pain, bleeding and diarrhea, the last thing they want is to administer more liquid into, this, into their bowels because it's usually very polytolerated. So that's how liquid enemas uh, were given as well as liquid administration via colonoscopy. One trial even looked at liquid administration of FMT via a nasogeugenal tube, which is where they put a tube uh, via the nose into the stomach and small bowel, and then the liquid stools was um, administered via that tube into the small bowel. That study was probably underpowered and the results were not positive. And uh, so to date, all our information on FMT has been from colonoscopic uh, or rectally administered FMT formulations. So the Lotus study uh, changes that by having the first all oral capsule formulation of FMT and also looked at beyond eight weeks into the maintenance phase out to one year. Mm. Uh, may I know or uh, find out more about this uh, preparation behind the oral FMT capsule? Uh, is it a very, you know, uh, a very uh, troublesome or cumbersome task? Yeah, look, it's manufactured under good manufacturing practices. So it's uh, in a licensed facility. So it's very similar to manufacturing of drugs. So there has to be the right conditions and all the regulations needs to be approved by the government. So um, it's not an easy preparation, whereas the liquid formulation, we essentially got the donors to donate into a um, container and then we were able to process that with just some saline. And so it was a very easy way of processing the liquid, but um, the quality of it was not assured. This study, we used lyophilization, which is like freeze drying of the 
organisms and that's been validated to maintain the efficacy of the treatment so the organisms um, do seem to still proliferate after the live lysation process but what it improves upon is that it can be stored and it can be stored in room temperature as well so patients are able to even keep it in room temperature for extended periods of time which we were unable to do with the liquid formulation so it's under uh, licensed some um, production facilities and it also is uh, validated for ongoing efficacy and also it's uh, easy for patients to to use at the end of the day mm. and may i know actually how do you all explain this oral fmt to to the patients are they what's their common reaction to to the idea or to the use mm. of oral fmt yeah, so for some time we have changed the paradigm of inflammatory bowel diseases, which is Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, where the thinking behind the pathogenesis or the etiology is multifactorial. So we've always talked about that there is a genetic component, there's also environmental components and also a dysregulation of the immune system. Over the last few years, we've added a new component to us and that's a imbalance of the intestinal microbiome. The microbiome is the organisms that inhabit the gut and we can see that patients with inflammatory bowel diseases have what's called dysbiosis, which is an imbalance of their pro-inflammatory versus the anti-inflammatory organisms that inhabit their guts when they compare the patients with healthy controls. So that has added to some of the thinking behind how inflammatory bowel diseases occur. So based on this, the hypothesis of what we've done is whether when we manipulate the intestinal microbiota, whether we can induce remission and maintain remission in these chronic inflammatory diseases. So the traditional management of these patients have been with immunosuppressive therapies. So they have inflammation in their guts and we treat it with drugs that decrease the body's immune and inflammatory responses, so such as corticosteroids, which is uh, effective into decreasing the gut inflammation, but it can also cause systemic side effects such as unwanted uh, infections, and some of these can be terrible infections uh, for patients. Other drugs include immunomodulators such as azathioprine and methotrexate, but then there's a new class of advanced therapies including the biological agents, which are monoclonal antibodies that target some of the proteins involved in the inflammatory cascade. The first one was infliximab, which is a, a blocker of tumor necrosis factor alpha, which is very important cytokine that mediates inflammation. So these are the traditional managements of patients with inflammatory bowel diseases. So what we really needed was a new way of thinking. Do we have other strategies that can get patients well with inflammatory bowel diseases when we don't want to suppress the body's immune system? So we give patients these options when we uh, recommend uh, the study. The studies for patients with moderate to moderate uh, ulcerative colitis. They had to have uh, what we call a Mayo score between four and ten, which is a mild to moderate uh, spectrum. And then we let patients know that the traditional methods of treating their disease include immunosuppressive medicines or manipulation of the microbiome. And interestingly, a lot of them, just like yourself, have already heard about the microbiome and they understand that it might be a very relevant um, and important driver of inflammation. And so they get quite interested in a non-immune suppressing method of treating the disease. And this is obviously very 
uh, attractive when patients don't like the idea of immunosuppressing themselves, which can then lead to opportunistic infections. So we give them the option of a standard therapy of stepping up their therapy, which can then go into a more potent systemic immunosuppression, or we can offer to manipulate the microbiome in order to induce remission. So um, a lot of patients actually quite like the idea, and in fact, they will refer specifically for access to the microbial manipulation pathways. Okay, I see. Yes, and then uh, I'm wondering if you can, you know, explain the process of selecting the donors and what are some of the criteria uh, uh, you all will, you know, uh, follow when choosing the donors? Yes, the donors are uh, volunteers, so healthy volunteers, and they've been screened using a standardised questionnaire as well as a list of investigations um, in the blood as well as in the stools to make sure that they don't harbour any infectious agents uh, such as hepatitis, viral hepatitis or helicobacter or any other um, forms of um, in, uh, infective agents. They also are screened for diseases including um, uh, obesity. So metabolic diseases have been considered to be um, related to the microbiome nowadays, so they essentially have to have near normal body mass indexes. They don't, they can't have any gastrointestinal symptoms, which can also be driven by an imbalance of the gut microbiota, and they also can't have any other uh, diseases, chronic diseases, and as well as psychiatric diseases, which we now know may be associated also with the intestinal microbiota because they can. Uh, formulates uh, the organisms can formulate neurotransmitters, which can then lead to mood disorders, etc. So patients undergo a very extensive list of um, uh, exclusion criteria, and these have been published in the consensus uh, working group that we were part of um, that you mentioned before that was eventually used by the TGA of Australia to uh, formulate the regulatory guidelines of fecal microbiota transplantation uh, manufacturing and processing. So this long list um, is applied to volunteers and only one in 10 actually meet the criteria to donate their stools at the end of the day. So nine out of 10 actually get excluded. So that's how um, rigorous this process is. Besides the regulatory process of screening donors, we also have a uh, I guess findings from a previous study, which is called the FOCUS study, where we found that certain organisms that, when present, at, can decrease the efficacy of fecal microbiota transplantation, efficacy for the treatment of ulcerative colitis. So the presence of two organisms in particular, called Fusobacterium and Sartorella, the presence of these organisms are significantly associated with non-response to FMT. So what was important when we were screening for donors was the absence of these organisms. So besides meeting the regulatory requirements, we also improved the quality of the donors by selecting for the absence of these negative organisms. So uh, we had two donors um, that were volunteers and each patient recipient um, that received FMT only received from one donor. So it was not a mixed um, batch, it was a single donor batch that patients received. So that uh, made it easier for us to track the efficacy of the donors 
And interestingly, even though we found the signatures associated with a better response, we also found that one of the donors were uh, had an efficacy of 100% and the second donor had efficacy of 36% only, and that was quite significantly different. So despite what we thought we were selecting for the best donors, um, one of them turned out to be a very good donor, what we call a super donor, and the other one was just a very mediocre donor of 36%. So it goes to show that there is a lot we don't know about donors, and maybe when we screen the FMT of the donors, it's a dynamic process and things can change over time. And things that we didn't account for might have shifted and that led to improvements or decreasing efficacy of the FMT donated products. So that's very interesting that um, even when you do your best, you can find very good and not so good donors. OK, can you also share the process? So let's say I have selected the two donors, right? Then what follows after that when, uh, you know, in the making of the oral capsule? Um, well, that's all done by our collaborators, um, and so that's the Centre of Digestive Diseases, and they've been involved in FMT production for decades. They have been um, leaders in this field, firstly developing the liquid formulation and more recent years uh, encapsulating that with a live lyosation process. And that's manufactured according to uh, good manufacturing practices. So they are uh, a uh, facility that I think is obtaining licensing from the government um, and their process is, um, I guess, a um, uh, industrial process. So I don't have the information about how that's produced precisely, but lyophilization is very simply freeze drying of um, organisms to maintain the efficacy, but then um, providing a greater temperature range um, and also maintaining the quality of it over time. Okay, and this trial, right, it's actually a two-part trial. So the first part, it, it, it's about eight weeks. So, um, you know, after that, when the patients, they were found to have positive response to the to this intervention, they will go on to another stage, which is a longer uh, period of intervention. So I'm, I'm wondering why is it that, you know, some of the patients, they, they had a positive response, but not the other patients, not, not the other the other group? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the trial design is very similar to other trials for inflammatory bowel diseases, which is where we take patients with active disease and we confirm that the disease is active and then we induce them into remission with the products and then compare it against a placebo. So uh, that's the induction phase and that took place over eight weeks and patients were given two weeks of antibiotics beforehand, oral antibiotics, very common antibiotics, amoxicillin, doxycycline, metronidazole, which is designed to further decrease the pathobionts, um, the uh, Sutterella and the Fusobacterium, which we know are negative contributors towards the efficacy of FMT. So we use two weeks of antibiotics in everybody. And then patients would then randomize one-to-one -to, -one to receive the active treatments via capsules, as well as identical placebo capsules, which were the control. Controls. So patients were given loading doses of it. So for the first week, they actually had six capsules four times a day. Second week, they had six capsules twice a day. And then for the third to 
eighth week, they had um, six capsules daily. So um, it was quite a big loading, but that's the way to rapidly um, engraft the organisms if they could randomize to FMT. So for patients that responded well to FMT, we then re-randomized them for the maintenance phase of the study towards either withdrawal of the FMT and to continue FMT. And we did this on a one-to-one -one basis. And the question we want to ask is that whether dose reduction, so patients were then on just two capsules a day from week eight to week 56, whether two capsules a day could lead to the identical microbial signature than um, uh, compared to uh, when they had the induction therapy. So the question we want to ask is whether we can decrease uh, the load of these FMT capsules and still maintain the microbial effects as well as the clinical effects. And patients who were randomized to withdraw, they just stopped the treatments and then we monitored them. And we wanted to see whether the induction therapy was enough to sustain the remission over long periods of time or if that tended to get recurrence of disease. So the results of the maintenance are actually very interesting because it wasn't designed to be a uh, statistically comparable group. We just really wanted to see microbial signature to see if that was actually sustained over time. But what we actually saw was that there was massive differences between the two groups. So 10 patients that receive FMT enter into response at week eight. So when they had response, they were then eligible to go into the maintenance phase of the study and patients then were randomized and four of them received FMT and six of them were randomized to stop therapy. For the four people that were randomized to FMT, they continued two capsules a day and when we collected all their data at week 56, we found them to be all in clinical remission. So they all felt very well as, uh, as well as you and I, um, but, but then we also looked at their colonoscopies uh, biopsies as well. And what we found was that not only were they clinically well, but they had no evidence of disease anymore. So all, all the inflammation had improved endoscopically, but that was not the only part. When we took biopsies and gave them to our pathologists in a blinded fashion, so they were unaware whether patients were continuing therapy or had stopped therapy, the ones that had continued FMT, the pathologists uniformly said that they didn't have any more histological activity anymore. So all the inflammatory cell infiltrate had resolved. So essentially the bowel was created as what's called Nancy score of zero, which means that it was no inflammatory infiltration into the bowel. And this was done by a central reader who assessed all the um, specimens and was able to provide a independent unbiased assessment of the inflammation. For the six people that continued, um, that stopped their FMT, um, we found that all of them eventually had disease flares. So all of them in the end had active inflammation and or required treatments for flares of the ulcerative colitis. And the average time that was um, uh, that took place was six months after stopping the FMT, they tended to get a flare around that time. And that's very similar to data that we had collected before for a prior FMT study where we gave the patients colonoscopy infusion followed by enemas. 
that was also six months. So it looks like FMT is not a durable cure for terminal ulcerative colitis, and there needs to be some maintenance along the way. Not a lot, just two capsules a day was enough to sustain that microbial signature, but importantly, was also associated with clinical remission plus endoscopic and histological remission. So that's the interesting part about the maintenance phase of the study. Yeah, indeed. So I'm wondering, like, for those patients who, you know, they 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 manage to uh, see a remission in uh, ulcerative colitis after uh, the 56 week, right? Does it mean that they will need to co uh, continue to take, the, you know, the 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 capsule uh, for the effects to 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 remain? Do you think um, that could be the case? Yeah, it's uh, we can speculate that, but it's highly uh, important for us to study that because ulcerative colitis is an incurable condition. We're not treating patients just for one year, but one year was the time point for this, um, I guess, pilot study to look at how durable FMT is. And it, the answer is very simple. If you're giving someone a very low load of these uh, FMT organisms, then um, it's a very uh, small ask for patients. And the benefit of it is, um, uh, is it's very, very strong when their inflammatory infiltrate has disappeared. It's a, it's a very good indicator that the disease is under very good control. So we need to look at this further, and this was only a pilot part of the maintenance study. We need to design an actual maintenance studies to see if the treatment can be sustained. And you asked before, how come some patients responded and some patients did not respond? Um, uh, that's a great question. We found that 53% of patients uh, entered into a, um, the uh, primary endpoint, which was uh, symptomatic remission, corticosteroid-free, but also associated with endoscopic response or remission. Only 53% of them entered into that um, uh, endpoint compared against 15%. So it's quite a marked difference. So this means that um, maybe some patients were going to enter into this endpoint, but took longer than eight weeks. So maybe if we had uh, continued the treatments for a little bit longer, they might have been what we call slow responders. They've had inflammation for a long period of time. You can't expect them to get rid of the inflammation within about two months. So it's possible that maybe it's a time-based factor. The second issue may be because we've got two different donors. One of them had 100% efficacy. The other one only had a 36% efficacy. So you were more likely to do well if you had the stools from a super donor. The super donor might have had a combination of stools that was a, a better uh, quality as well as associated with some of the very important bioactive compounds associated with remission, um, and also maybe had more of the beneficial bacteria which balanced out the pro-inflammatory organisms. So perhaps uh, if you got lucky enough to be randomised to one of the donors that uh, was a super donor, then I think um, the efficacy chance was going to be much higher. Um, so. These are the things that are under investigations at the moment, and we really don't know why that's the case with all treatments. When we do the trials for drugs as well, it's not going to be ever 100%. It's impossible to get 100% efficacy from a drug. And I think this is where there is a lot of personalization, where patients' disease may need to be matched against to a treatment. We don't have tools to do that at the moment, um, but uh, certainly there's a lot of research in how we can personalize the treatments of inflammatory bowel diseases. Mm, 
I see. Yeah, indeed. The personalized um, medicine and personalized nutrition, I think it's gaining traction uh, from what I have seen. Yes, and I'm wondering, like, what are some of the upcoming plans following the completion of this trial? Uh, well, I think we need to do a properly powered maintenance study. We've now got some very preliminary data to show that it is very efficacious. We know the dose it took to do that, and um, we need to perhaps find the right dose. Maybe uh, we can spread out the dosing intervals as well. Maybe some patients don't need to take it every single day. Maybe it needs to be every second day, every third day. Ultimately, we liked the microbial signature at the end of the maintenance period to be identical to after induction. And that means that giving smaller amounts, maybe on a irregular basis, can help to sustain the benefits that had uh, been conducted with the induction study. So I think that's the next question we want to ask is how much and how little, how regular, how irregular we can give these organisms in order to continue the clinical benefits, the endoscopic benefits and the histological benefits, but also maintain a microbial signature of a well-balanced uh, microbiome inside the gut. Okay, and may I know what you think could be some of the challenges that, uh, you know, uh, that you all might face when implementing oral FMT on a wider scale? This could be in terms of regulatory uh, restrictions or even manufacturing restrictions. Yeah, that's been uh, a big barrier because prior to the TGA uh, regulation uh, guidelines publication, the hospitals were producing the FMT and it was very useful. It was very important to treat patients with a very severe form of uh, inflammation infection, in the gut called Clostridium difficile. Clostridium difficile is very easily managed with FMT. The efficacy of that is very, very high and you can essentially save a patient's bowel or even save their lives by rapidly giving them FMT treatments. But since the guidelines were published by the, the uh, TGA, it's led to over-regulation of this process to the stage that many hospitals can no longer produce the FMT because of the strict licensing requirements. So this has led to opportunities by commercial agencies to produce these products and to provide them on a commercial basis. And Ultimately, it does save us a lot of money because the process of producing FMT is also very expensive because we have to spend a lot of money to screen the donors as well as to maintain the FMT that has been donated. So we're now able to purchase the FMT from uh, interstates or local facilities at a cost. So I guess that has changed the um, ability to do FMT studies. Um, the other big I think it's challenges. Um, we still don't understand how best to measure quality. So although this is uh, one of the first studies where we weren't just selecting FMT randomly from donors, we actually made an effort to find the best donors to provide um, the, uh, the FMT for treating ulcerative colitis because this is not our first study on treating ulcerative colitis. So we know a lot of information from our first study, but despite that we can we still aren't measuring quality properly when we've got efficacy that changes from 100% to 36%. Um, we really have a lot of things that we need to evaluate in order to know how do we increase the efficacy from 36% to 100%. So I think there's still a lot of research, not on the recipients, but also on the donors, on how best to get the best donors, best out of our donors. Mm. 
Okay, so back to the issue of regulations again. So I read that you serve as the chair of the clinical working group advising the TGA on the regulation of uh, fecal microbiota transportation. So I'm wondering what are some of the key considerations that the TGA had when drafting the relevant uh, regulations? Yeah, so the TGA uh, was very keen on classifying FMT uh, as as a drug, so they called it a biologic. But some um, um, there are different levels of uh, biological uh, agents. There's like uh, all the way down to um, different classes, like tissue. Like uh, it will be like a blood transfusion. But then the way they were regulating it or considering it was very very strictly because they didn't like the idea of um, the organisms um, not being uh, quality controlled, so they were very, very strict on it. So the purpose of the clinical working group was actually to invite a group of experts with interest in FMT to try to state to the FMT the importance of, I guess, um, not considering it as a drug, because if you consider it too much as a drug, it gets overly regulated and the ability to use it decreases. So. I think with the consensus process that we did, where the, we invited gastroenterologists, surgeons, um, infectious disease specialists, pathologists, uh, all together in the same room, as well as uh, consumers who have benefited from FMT. So there was a patient that uh, did very well at FMT. Um, the point was that we can regulate it by giving some strict guidelines to decrease backyard FMT processing, which is where um, complete uh, um, people not without expertise are producing it, but then it doesn't need to be overly regulated as well. And it also gave the ability for hospitals to still produce it, and um, the licensing of it is not as regulated than a commercial facility. So it's uh, it it did increase the regulation process, but not as bad as it would have without the consensus working group. All right, so now that you know this oral FMT has been proven to be uh, effective, so I'm wondering um, what could uh, be the next step? I'm, I'm not too sure, you know, like oral FMT, could it be uh, regulated as a drug or maybe even complementary medicine, meaning like uh, you know, supplements? Yeah, um, I guess the classification of it never made it into complementary medicine, which means that um, it avoids the TGA uh, um, licensing um, rules. So it's uh, not complementary medicines. We did talk about that at a meeting with the TGA beforehand. We wanted it to be called maybe even a, a food group. So we know that probiotics gets included into foods, um, but unfortunately they recognise that it's not as clear cut as that. So it is regulated as a biological medicine. So in that way, it's not a tissue like a transplant. It's not a blood product like uh, blood transfusions. So it's being regulated a bit like a biological drug at the moment. Um, so what we need to do is, I guess, work out what is the what are the bioactive products that the organisms are producing and maybe then we can turn it into a drug so we might be able to measure the amounts of it and then quality control it and ensure that every capsule has the best combination of um, of uh, products uh, and bioactive um, peptides to 
produce the best efficacy for the drug. So I think that's where a lot of research can go to is to actually work out what are the organisms doing and what are the agents that are associated with the best efficacy. So at the, at the end of the day, it's probably not about the organisms per se, it's about what they are doing. Yeah, and I think that's probably where the research needs to go to as well. So rather than just talking about the organisms, how it's regulated, we just need to work out what the organisms are doing and then go on from there with manufacturing of an actual drug, which can then be completely quality controlled. Mm, I see. All right. So um, actually for this, um, you know, uh, gastrointestinal health, probiotics has been a very uh, 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 emerging, I would say it's uh, emerging and also becoming very popular as well. So based on your uh, research and clinical experience, right, how else or what types of complementary medicines can improve, you know, uh, gut and bowel related problems? Well, I think any claims needs to be backed up by evidence and there are already good evidence for certain types of commentary alternative medical therapies, including um, there, there was a study on uh, aloe vera, which showed that it was effective in treating ulcerative colitis, and another one on turmeric in curcumin. Curcumin, uh, three grams a day, was uh, assessed in a uh, randomized control study, which also found there was benefits. So there are various agents that have been shown to be effective. There are others that are negative as well. So even though the fecal transplantation can be seen to be like the ultimate of probiotics. A lot of probiotics have met with negative uh, studies indicating that um, maybe by themselves, these organisms are ineffective in treating the disease when studied properly. So it might be at the end of the day, a different type of organism or maybe if a combination of organisms or how it's um, manufactured that is most important. So I don't think um, it's going to be a one size fit all type situation where we found that FMT to be useful. It doesn't mean that all probiotics are going to be useful. In fact, quite the opposite. I think most probiotics are not going to be useful because uh, FMT is something quite different to just probiotics because it it's just so complicated and the um, organisms and constituents are just so complex. So I I will also like to ask like maybe one or two more questions on you know like uh, why did you uh, choose to specialize in this area in this uh, gastrointestinal health area? Oh, I think it's just a fascinating and growing area. I think um, uh, traditionally gastroenterology has uh, been very important. So, for example, one in five individuals have irritable bowel syndrome, which then takes up a lot of uh, healthcare costs. They visit the GPs with non-specific gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, and also GI cancers used to be very common. Peptic ulcers used to be very common. Viral hepatitis as well, causing liver cancer. So gastroenterology actually is a very important field for us physicians. So um, entering into this field, I found inflammatory bowel diseases to be a challenge because these are diseases that are incurable and leads to a lot of suffering to a lot of young people. So the average age of patients being diagnosed with inflammatory bowel diseases is from the teens to, uh, to the 20s. So it can really affect someone's uh, 
life because you're affecting them at the outset and that can change the way they have uh, interpersonal social relationships and their job and study opportunities. So I think that's a motivation to improve patients' quality of life is to study this very difficult to manage disease. And when I first started, there were very few drugs available to treat these diseases. A lot of drugs have been used not specifically for um, 30, 40, 50 years as uh, corticosteroids. So it was actually quite some a good time to see that a lot of research had gone into developing treatments that can manage Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So I came at the right time to see that a lot of research has been successful and new drugs were coming onto the market. But with every new drug that came on, there came about new problems. So for example, infliximab led to complications and patients um, could get uh, opportunistic infections such as tuberculosis um, and some other patients uh, got uh, immune diseases such as lupus um, and others got cancer such as lymphoma. So, so these earlier drugs may not be the full answers. So this ongoing study of finding the best treatment for inflammatory bowel disease has kept me very interested in this field because uh, you can see that some um, uh, new problems um, uh, you try to find solutions but that just leads to other new problems and it's really good to identify something that is effective and um, universal that can treat a lot of patients with these uh, very refractory diseases. Mm, I see okay uh, is there any other like maybe uh you know, methods or uh, natural ingredients that you, you are researching on, maybe for a clinical trial on, on and its effects on, you know, IBD? I think the um, natural ingredients, um, there is a lot of potential, but we need to have good data for them. And at the moment, there's not a lot of great studies on that. I think um, the fact that we've acknowledged that the microbiome is important has given us the opportunity to study a lot of uh, products that are produced associated with these um, agents, and one of which is uh, short-chain fatty acids, uh, such as butyrate. And butyrate has long been associated with being a nutritional source for the cells that line the gut, the enterocytes. But we now know from our own research that uh, the right short-chain fatty acids is associated with a marker of the beneficial effect. So there is a lot of opportunity to find out what these organisms are doing associated with efficacy FMT, but then to develop agents that are natural and that can help the gut, and one of which would be short-chain fatty acids. Um, and I think that's where a lot of our research is leading to, is to work out what these organisms are doing and find the right combinations and treatments that can provide patients with treatments that are not likely to harm them, and they may be very simple natural ingredients. Thank you very much for your time to speak with me on this. I think it's very uh, interesting to you know find out more about this novel uh, method. Thanks very much, and it's a real pleasure to join you on your podcast. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Neutra Champion on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. You can also head to NutraIngredients-Asia.com for more content and news on the nutrition industry.